So I'm just going to proceed with the uh, bonus, bonus chat slash song. And there's a reason I've put these two things together tonight. Uh, as I've gone on and in life and in the ministry, one thing you'll notice is that uh, in your own life as well, certain preferences change. Things that you didn't used to enjoy now, a little more acceptable, a little more palatable. And the same, this is especially true of, of singing and music. Um, it's also true of preaching styles, right? As the style in which I used to preach. I can hardly recognize myself when I listen to a sermon that I preached 20 years ago compared to how I preach now. It's very different. And uh, music as well. It'll change a little bit. Uh, when I was in America and growing up Catholic, right, my taste in music, especially church music, was was very different than now. And then after I got saved, I was exposed to a very different style of music, um, very conservative, but I enjoyed it thoroughly. Then when I got to Malawi, things changed drastically. We had no instruments. We had no electricity. Uh, it was singing, dancing, clapping. Uh, it was very different, but I grew to enjoy that very much. And then coming here, of course, things again changed slightly. A little more of what I was used to in America, but still not the same. I wanted to share with you uh, a clip of a man singing. This man's name is Jasper Williams, and he's a preacher, an African-American preacher in, in America, and an outstanding preacher. I fully recommend, if you get the time, look at some of this guy's sermons. I, I thoroughly enjoy them. I get blessed and edified and encouraged and excited. I enjoy his style of preaching. I may not want to always listen to that style, but I do enjoy it. And uh, even the singing, this is not something that, that I would, I wouldn't sing like this, but I really enjoy listening to it. And you can tell that it's not just done for show. This, this brother genuinely means this. So I hope you enjoy this, this quick clip of Brother Jasper Williams singing for us. The Lord's been good to me
I could get into singing like that. I I so much enjoy that. If any of you have a song on your heart that you'd like to sing in church, please let me know. I, I'd love, I don't want you to think because we sing out of a hymn book or we sing a certain style of music that that is the only style that is acceptable. Music comes with a bit of a gray area. Some of it is preference and you do have to be careful, right? You don't want to get too wild with it and stuff like that. But Man, I, I, I thoroughly enjoy that. Let me make a couple quick announcements. Please remind me, I got this little reminder here. I need to give you your notes for your Philippians exam. So at the end of class, if somebody could once again slip in a quick message into the comments uh, just to remind me. And just so that you know, I haven't forgotten my glasses. I got them right here, but I'm trying contacts. I've been struggling with my eyes as of late. So I got the big bottle of contact solution eye drops. So in case my eyes start going funny and I start blinking weird, if I have to take a second and, and put some eye drops in, forgive me. But I'm trying to work this out so that, um, yeah, my eyes come right. The problem is with contacts, I can see the screen, but I can't see my Bible that well. So all of the notes that I have in, in my Bible, I really don't have access to tonight. Um, so I brought this little we call it a doohickey. I don't know if in South Africa if you have doohickeys, but this is a ruler, straight edge, so that I can underline things in my Bible, but it's also a magnifying glass, as you might be able to tell. <laughs> so if I need to see my notes, I might use this a little bit. 
All right, we're in Matthew chapter 26. By the grace of God, we're going to finish this chapter tonight to make a little bit of headway into chapter 27. Let's go ahead and begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank you tonight. You have been good. Down through the years, you have been good to me. And Lord, regardless of the tune with which, in which we sing it, it's, it still remains true. And I pray that you'd guide us tonight. Let the Spirit of God grip our hearts as we go verse by verse, reading about the story of how you took that slow march to the cross where you died in our place. God, let it always have a special place in our lives and our hearts and our memories. Father, please bring this portion of Scripture to life tonight. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Matthew 26, verse 47. Real quick, I'll give you the outline just to remind you. We are down here on part five now. We're in the middle of the scene of the Garden of Gethsemane. And uh, as you can see on the screen above the scripture there, the betrayal and arrest of Jesus. Obviously, you can outline this chapter several different ways. I'm, this is all happening in the garden, so I put it in that part of the outline. Verse 47, and while he yet spake, and Jesus had just told the disciples, rise, let us be going. Lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priest and elders of the people. Now, these are not Roman soldiers, mind you, but the Sanhedrin. You can think of that as the Jewish parliament, if you will. They had their own soldiers that they could deploy. So that's who you're reading about here. Verse 48, now he that betrayed uh, he that betrayed them, I'm sorry, he that betrayed him gave them a sign saying, whomsoever I shall kiss, that same as he hold him fast. All right, now you have to remember that this is in the middle of the night. This is about two, three o'clock in the morning, right about there, about closer to three. And it's very dark. They have lanterns and torches, things like that. But it's very difficult to, to tell the difference between one man and another, especially in this time, it, it, uh, this time, time frame, time, this period of time in history. The men wore their hair very much the same. They all had beards and so forth. Uh, so in order for Judas to, to discern which one is Jesus, he would have to get very close to him in order to see and make sure who it was. That's probably why it says, I'm gonna designate the, the person you wanna take with a kiss. Now the kiss, right, he can get very close, he can tell who, who he's dealing with, but it's ironic, the symbol that he uses, because here he's been walking with Jesus for three and a half years, been preaching in Jesus' name. Jesus is gonna call him friend, and then Judas is gonna betray him with this friendly gesture of this intimate gesture of, of a kiss. Now, mind you, the holy kiss, that type of thing. So he says, Whomsoever I shall kiss, the same, that same as he, hold him fast. Now, why hold him fast? I'm going to put a couple of verses into the chat section here. Luke chapter 4 and verse 30. And then also John chapter 10. And I believe I want verse 39. <laughs> Again, I'm struggling a little bit with my notes, but that sounds familiar. Yeah, I think I can see that. In both of those places, what you find is the multitude or the crowd, whatever you're dealing with there, they came to grab Jesus and take hold of him, and he slips through the crowd. So Judas knows that Jesus, he has some ninja moves, man. He can get through the crowd real real well. So he says, when you see me, give this, this alert, this sign, the kiss. 
then hold him fast because Judas knows that Jesus is, I think, nimble would be the right word. Verse 49, and forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master. Now the word master, the the Greek word, or let's say the word that's used in the manuscript there is rabbi. Uh, So I think in one of the other gospels it actually is left untranslated and says rabbi. Hail, Master, and kissed him. So remember, this is a great term of respect. So these are flattering words, right? At this point, Judas has betrayed him. And I, as I mentioned yesterday, I believe it was, or just recently, that Judas was probably upset about how he had been handled when he asked about that woman anointing him and wasting all of it. So he's, he's bitter, but he's still going to talk as if everything's fine. Hail, Master, and kissed him. Uh, let me show you a verse in Proverbs This makes good preaching, so I'm not going to spend long talking about it, but it's good that you know where it's at. But the the illustration we have in this story is be careful when people come around with flattering titles, uh, good words and fair speeches. Proverbs uh, 27, verse 6, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. And it's very interesting how that proverb is fulfilled or at least illustrated with the story we're looking at here in Matthew 26. All right, um, let's keep going through the chapter here. In verse number 50, it says, And Jesus said unto him, Friend, wherefore art thou come? Then came they and laid hands on Jesus and took him. So we don't have the response from Judas, but notice that Jesus asks him, friend. He, he addresses him as friend. Now, why is that interesting? Well, we know from, uh, well, there's a song you might remember where it says, Jesus, what a friend to sinners. And uh, how true it is, right? That Jesus can look at, at the, the one who's betraying him, selling him out and call him friend. It's interesting when you put this together with John 15, verse 13, which I think I can pull up and show you quickly because this will uh, tell us something about who Jesus died for. Jesus said, Greater love hath no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. Now, there is a teaching called limited atonement. And the Calvinists believe this. Not all of them do, but many of them do. They believe that Jesus did not die for everybody, but he only died for the elect. Well, no Calvinist would consider Judas one of the elect. But Jesus calls him friend. And according to this, Jesus laid down his life for his friends. So it would seem to indicate, at least indirectly, that Jesus did die for everyone, not just some arbitrarily chosen group. Uh, Wherefore art thou come? No response. Judas is probably ashamed at this point, at least deep down, right? Verse 51, And behold, one of them which were with uh, Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck a servant of the high priest and smote off his ear. That's in John's gospel, I believe, that we learn about the name of this servant. His name was Malchus. And we know who the, who the uh, sword swinger is. This is Peter. Uh, and he's making good on his earlier... Uh, suggestion of devotion. Lord, I'm ready to go to prison. I'm ready to die with you. He's ready to fight. Now, mind you, he wasn't ready to pray, but he was. Peter's ready to pull that sword out and get, get down to business. Now, I recently preached about the Garden of Gethsemane and Peter's prayer journal, if any of you remember that sermon. 
So you know that there is a way that you can approach this, this passage very practically and learn a lot about prayer and about not trying to solve all of life's problems with your sword. Um, but I want to stick to just more of the doctrine and the practical teaching that comes directly from the passage. So let me just move on from that. Verse 52, Then said Jesus unto him, Put up again thy sword into his place, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. So Peter, once you start down this path, trying to fix everything with your sword, you're never going to quit fighting. And uh, you've heard the old saying, fighting fire with fire. Well, that just burns everything up. And that's, that's what Jesus is warning him against. You can't solve it all with your sword. This is something that you could have solved with prayer, maybe. right? You would have been better prepared for it. But put your sword up. This isn't time for that. Now, obviously, Jesus is referring to an actual literal sword. Uh, but as I mentioned in that sermon, you can think of this also with the sword of the Spirit. Right? It's great that you know your Bible, but not everything is going to be solved just because you know where the verse is at or you know what verses apply to that situation. You're going to have to have more than just Bible knowledge. Verse 53, Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he shall presently give me more than 12 legions of angels? So more than 12 12 groups of angels. Now thousands are, you know, when you're thinking of a legion, you think of a thousand. So more than 12,000 angels stand at the ready. All Jesus would have had to have done is pray. And he could have brought the necessary deliverance and wiped out the enemy and so forth. But there was something that was of greater importance to Jesus than his own personal safety. Verse 54, but how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled that thus it must be? So Jesus realizes, and and if you think this passage through with me, the way it reads, Jesus had a choice. Even up till this point, he could have prayed and gone against the direct will of God and left the scripture, all the prophecies, undone. Now, you, when, you, when you try to think of Jesus doing that, right, it seems to be incompatible. How could Jesus, how would he even entertain that thought? It's not that he strongly considered rebellion, but it does seem to indicate that he had that option, that Jesus, on an individual basis, had to make that choice. He had to willingly lay down his life. He even said, no man takes it from me. I lay it down of myself. So even up until now, he said, it seems to indicate that he had a choice. Now, he had a choice in that he has a free will. He's a free agent, just like the rest of us. But when you think of it scripturally, his devotion to the Father, his commitment, there's, there's just, as we would say, no choice in the matter. A choice maybe existed, but when it comes to fulfilling the scripture and doing what God sent him to do, there's no way around it. He has to go to the cross. Verse 55, in that same hour said Jesus to the multitudes, Are ye come out as against a thief with swords and staves for to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple, and ye laid no hold on me. So he says, guys, you're coming out here with swords and staves, acting as if I'm a very dangerous criminal. When have you ever known me to pose this kind of threat? I'm the guy that you saw teaching in the temple. I'm, 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 I'm not this kind of a threat. Now he's saying this, I think, to, to bring light to the fact they're doing this in the middle of the night. 
under cover of darkness because they know that they don't have a good case against him. I think he's speaking to the pricks that they were feeling in their conscience for being a part of this. He's just bringing to light what they're trying to hide in the darkness, that they don't have a good case against him. That's evidenced by how they're approaching him and when they're approaching him. Verse 56, Jesus says, But all this was done, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. So exactly as Jesus said, you'll be offended. Right? The, the disciples were not expecting this. They didn't know that Judas was going to do this. Jesus did, but the rest of them didn't. They, they did not factor this in. So when Jesus said, you'll all be offended, they, they weren't ready for the, the idea of soldiers coming upon them and, and arresting Jesus in the middle of a prayer meeting. Caught them by surprise. But I want to point this out on a practical note. On your worst day, the scriptures still must be your final authority. This is, can we say, Jesus' worst day, if I can say it like that? Do you understand what I mean? He's, his soul is feeling the pressures of, of death, right? In this, the, the, the pains of hell have, have gripped his soul, all of that that we looked at yesterday. But even then, under all of this pressure, you still have to allow the scripture to guide your actions. I think there's a tremendous lesson in all of us, or in this for, for all of us. All right, now, verse 57. The Bible says, And they that had laid hold on Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. Now, remember that uh, they've been working on a plot to get Jesus secretly. And now Judas has gone out and brought... So they're, they're all colluded together to make this happen. So they're ready to put Jesus through this mock trial, what we might call a kangaroo court. I don't know if you've ever heard that term. But they got this set up at three in the morning, thereabouts. Verse 58, But Peter followed him afar off unto the high priest's palace and went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now you can look at it on Google. They... The area where Jesus was tried, right, Caiaphas's house, that palace, it's, it still stands to a certain extent. That You can see the rubble, the basic form of it. And the palace came in levels. So there was the main area where Jesus would have been judged, and then slightly down and out you have um, a porch, and then out a little farther there's, there's just different, um, well, it's just like any house, right? You, 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 have, you can go down, there's like a basement area, all of that. A lower level, maybe I should say. So Peter is, is close enough so that he can see what's happening. Now, when you read John's gospel, you find out that all of the disciples forsook, but then two of them came back, right? John, we assume, as you read John 18, you'll see why I say we assume it, because uh, he doesn't put his own name in there. But it looks as if John, after forsaking, came back and was in the palace of the high priest, at least witnessing what was happening. And he goes out and gets Peter and brings Peter in, not all the way fully in, but at least onto the premises, premises of the palace. Right? So it says he, he sat with the servants to see the end. So as I've mentioned before, I believe Peter was... Um, he was a bit frustrated with the Lord and confused. Why did I get rebuked for trying to help? 
Why didn't he let me help him? I had taken off the guy's ear. I could have possibly made a bigger difference, maybe even freed him uh, from you know this false arrest. Why, why, I don't understand why Jesus would do this. And so that's why he's a bit far off. He doesn't know what to do with himself at this point. Verse 59, now the chief priest and elders and all the council, we would call that the Sanhedrin, sought false witness against Jesus to put him to death. Now notice that they sought false witness. They couldn't, they knew if we seek just for witnesses, man, we're going to get all kinds of people, hundreds if not thousands of people coming forward talking about how much Jesus had helped them. So they specifically were looking for people that would lie. Jesus, on one occasion in the book of John, he said, which one of you convinceth me of sin? We would say, which one of you convicts me? You have nothing on me. You find, you, there's no fault you can find in my teaching or in my ministry, the way I'm helping people. So they had to seek for false witnesses. Uh, verse 60, but found none. Yea, though many false witnesses came, yet found they none. Isn't this something that the wisdom of the world, right? They're trying to make a plan to overthrow the Lord, and yet the world at its best cannot outdo God. They, they can't even get their ducks in a row to, to make their false confessions line up so that they actually make sense. It says in verse 60 at the end, at the last came two false witnesses and said, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. Now, here again, if you put all the gospel accounts side by side and look at it, it builds a, a much fuller picture. And you can see that these two witnesses, they came and tried to tell this story, but not their witnesses, their confessions didn't line up perfectly. So nothing they said could actually stick. But this was the one that kind of set the high priest off. So this is why I believe Matthew mentions it. This fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. Now, what these false witnesses are referring to, supposedly, right, is John chapter 2, verse 19. Now, this is one of those times where uh, it's real nice if you can hold it in, you know, physically in your hand and flip back and forth and compare these two places. Uh, but I'm going to put it up on the screen. John 2, 19 this is what Jesus actually said. Jesus answered and said unto them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now that's not the same. You say, but it sounds so close, but it's not the same. What they claimed, he said, I am able to destroy the temple of God. Well, Jesus said this temple, and he's referring to his body, as you can see in verse 21, but he spake of the temple of his body. So when you say temple of God, you're kind of narrowing that down to the actual building. But this temple, leaving um, that leaves room, right, for it not to be the actual bricks and mortar, but the body. And then he says, in three days, I will raise it up. Well, the false witnesses said that after destroying the temple, he would build it in three days. Well, see, that's raising it up and building it, not the same thing. Jesus said, I'll raise it up, which is a perfect reference to his death, burial, and resurrection, obviously. And after the death, burial, and resurrection, as you can see in verse 22, all of this fell into place and it made sense to, to the disciples. But the false witnesses, they, when they heard this 
maybe they heard it live, right? Maybe they did hear Jesus say this, or maybe this had this comment that Jesus had made had been passed down from person to person. But when they heard it, they had in their mind that Jesus is talking about the actual temple and that he's going to build it back up. But what, however they worded it, I'm not sure what the two witnesses said. They, their stories didn't line up, so their witness didn't even agree. All right, let me uh, bring you back to Matthew 26. All right, and uh, he says in verse 62, And the high priest arose and said unto him, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? Well, the reason Jesus has answered nothing is because there's nothing to answer. Everything that these witnesses had said, as we've read, they were false witnesses. Their, their testimonies didn't agree. So there's no need to straighten anything out. There's no need to explain anything because no actual legitimate charge had been laid against him. So why, why say anything? This fits very nicely with Proverbs chapter 26, verse 4. You might remember it. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest thou be like unto him. Well, this is just foolishness. These guys are coming in and misquoting what Jesus said. And one guy says, I heard him say this. And the other guy says, yeah, but I heard it like that. And the witnesses are, are not even in agreement. So why, why does Jesus need to speak up? What is it which these witness against thee? Well, verse 63, but Jesus held his peace. Why are you asking me what they're witnessing against me? <laughs> they haven't laid an actual charge yet, nothing that would stick. So the high priest is going to get down to business here. And the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee, I force you, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. That's the issue. Are you claiming to be the Messiah? Are you claiming to be the Son of God? Verse 64, Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast said. Which is the old way of saying, you got it. You're right. You've said it correctly. That is what I'm claiming to be. Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast said. Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Now, that's an interesting statement. He has quoted Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13. As you can see, that is going to be your attendance code. I am going to draw your attention to that portion of Scripture. Um, in the book of Daniel chapter 7, this passage, I, we, just, we don't have time to go through all of it. But verse 10, a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The judgment was set and the books were opened. You can see this very apocalyptic picture. I beheld them because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake. That'll be the Antichrist. I beheld even till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. Uh, that's Revelation 19 verse 20. Verse 12, as concerning the rest of the beast, that'll be these other nations that were mentioned in chapter 7, these other kingdoms. They had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and time, which I believe indicates that they will continue to be recognized nations into the millennial period. Verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, came with the clouds of heaven and came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him. 
So now every Jew understands this passage as speaking about the Messiah coming to have his kingdom set up and rule on earth. As you can see in verse 14, and there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. So Jesus, he, he refers back to Daniel 7 and verse 13 when answering the high priest. Now, why is that important to notice? That's the next big thing for the Jews to recognize. They had their chance to accept Jesus as the Christ. They had their chance to accept his testimony of being the Son of God. But because they rejected that, this is the next thing. You guys are going to see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven, and you, the, the, the stone that falls from heaven is going to grind you to powder. You might remember that from Matthew chapter 20 and 21 right there. So look at how the high priest responds to this. Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He hath spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now ye have heard his blasphemy. This is what the Muslims would call shirk, S-H-I-R-K, shirk, which is you have, being a man, you've equated yourself with divinity, with God. So when Jesus claims to be the Son of God, in the Jewish mindset, they understand that as a claim to deity, that, that, make, that puts you on equal footing with the Father. Now, this isn't the time or place to get into a full explanation of it, but let me just show you the Jews thinking on this. John 5, 17, but Jesus answered them, my father worketh hitherto and I work. Therefore, verse 18, the Jews sought the more to kill him because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. So when he accepts the title son of God, and he claims to be the fulfillment of Daniel 7, verse 13. Right? You're, you're going to see the Son of Man. I'm, I'm claiming to be the Messiah. You might be prepared to kill me now, but one day you're going to see me coming back in the clouds of heaven with great glory. They understood what that claim was. So they are now saying, hey, you're just a man, but you're claiming to be God. That's blasphemy. Uh, I'll show it to you again in uh, John chapter 10. Jesus said, I and my father are one, John 10, verse 30. In verse 31, then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, many good works have I showed you from my father. For which of those works do ye stone me? The Jews answered him saying, for a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy. And because that thou being a man makest thyself God. So that claim, me and the father are one, this to you and I, when we say son of God, that, that doesn't automatically trigger our minds to think, oh, then, he's, then he is God. But in the Jews' mind, with the scriptural background they had and all the revelation that they had, they knew this connection. So if somebody made this claim, they knew this is, he's making a claim of deity. All right, so the high priest, he's quite upset now, and he rends his garments. He says, guys, do we need to hear anything else? This man just committed blasphemy. He's claimed divinity, that deity. So what do you think? Verse 66, what think ye? They answered and said, he is guilty of death. Now you can go back into the law, Deuteronomy chapter 13, if somebody commits blasphemy, 
and makes a claim about, um, not about being God, that's not mentioned there in Deuteronomy 13, but makes claims about false gods and tries to get the people of Israel to follow a false god, then the penalty for that blasphemy is death. And that's kind of the gist here. Guys, what do you think? This guy is not only, not only is he trying to get us to follow something else, but he's claiming to be God. So they say he's guilty of death. Verse 67, then did they spit in his face and buffeted him. Now to buffet, that's to beat severely and not just pound him with a fist, but like slapping him upside his head and stuff. That's buffeting, just beating him down severely. And others smote him with the palms of their hands, open hand, slapping him. Uh, you, you'll find that this was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 50, a little bit also in chapter 52. Uh, in verse number 68 here, while they're smiting him, beating him, spitting on him, you read in one of the other gospels, they blindfolded him. They, they say to him, prophesy unto us, thou Christ. Now, obviously, this is met with some sarcasm. Who is he that smote thee? Well, this is interesting. They say prophesy. Do not limit the word prophesy to, to mean foretelling the future. The word prophesy or prophesying is a much bigger term. Prophesying, in one way to understand it, is to speak under divine inspiration. So the Lord has told you something, and now you pass that message on. So that's not always going to be something about the future necessarily. That can be something about the past, actually, like Moses writing the book of Genesis and explaining how it all took place. That is an act of prophecy, even though he's explaining the past, but he was speaking under divine inspiration. So they're, they're making light of the fact that Jesus has claimed this connection with God. Oh, okay, so you say you're the Christ, the Son of God, the Son of this almighty, all-powerful Son of Man, well, then surely you'll be able to tell us who hit you. Don't you have access to that kind of knowledge? So uh, the prophesying in this case is do something that the normal, natural human man couldn't do. Tell us something that the, the natural man wouldn't be able to know. Uh, verse number 69. Now the, the scene switches. We go to, a, you know, cut from camera one. Let's go to camera two. Now we're going to cut over to Peter outside at the, at the uh, palace. Now Peter sat without in the palace and a damsel came unto him. Now you read in one of the other gospels, a, a little maid. This was actually, there was a young lady keeping the door. I think that was in, it's either Luke or John, I think. Uh, but she says, saying, Thou also wast with Jesus of Galilee. Don't I recognize you as one of his disciples? Verse 70, But he denied before them all, saying, I know not what thou sayest. So what are you talking about? No, 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 no. I, I, I don't know that guy. Not, not me. That's not my kind of thing. So he denies knowledge at all. He tries to brush it off. Verse 71, And when he was gone out into the porch, so a little farther away from the entrance, Another maid saw him. Now notice how the word maid is in italics. This is one of those interesting cases when you line up all the gospels, some would say that it's a contradiction here because in, in one gospel it says, a maid saw him and said unto them that were there, this fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. So it looks like the young lady is making the accusation and another gospel agrees with that. But then in, it's either Mark or Luke, forgive me. I can't see my notes. Um, 
it says that there, that the one who made this second accusation was a man. There was a man that says to him, aren't you one of the disciples? Aren't you, that you were with Jesus. There's no contradiction to this. Guys, it, there was a young lady that saw him, a different young lady, and you can see it here in Matthew, said unto them that were there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. So this young lady brings to the attention of the crowd, I think this guy's one of his disciples. Shouldn't we be cautious of him? Shouldn't we do something about him? And then one of the men of that crowd speaks up and says, hey, aren't you one of the disciples? So you can give credit for this second question or second accusation to the young lady or to the man. Both things are correct. Verse 72, and again, he denied with an oath. So he says, you know, something to the effect of, I, I swear by heaven and earth, you know, I call God to my witness, something of that nature, trying to put an end to this. Again, he denied with an oath, I do not know the man. And after a while uh, came unto him they that stood by and said to Peter, surely thou, art, uh, thou also art one of them, for thy speech berayeth thee. Now, we don't use the word beray very often, if, if, if ever, but it, it's uh, calling you out. Your speech is telling on you. To beray is to bring to somebody's attention, to, to bring it to light. So they said, you know, you sound a lot like one of his disciples. Now, I think they're referring to the Galilean accent, um, but I think in a larger sense, right, you've been walking with Jesus, you start to walk like him and talk like him, and all of a sudden the things you say kind of sounds like him, and that should be true, right? A Christian's speech should beray him, and it should say, man, you, you sound an awful lot like a Christian. That, again, that gets more into preaching and not so much te teaching of the passage, but they said, we, we can tell by the accent, you know, you talk like, like this Jesus guy. So in order to disprove this, Peter goes all in. Verse 74, then began he to curse and to swear. So he starts cussing. Blankety blank. Now the Bible's delicate and doesn't give us all of the blue words that Peter used, saying, I know not the man. And immediately the cock crew, the rooster begins to crow, which, by the way, that little thumbnail that you saw leading up to the, to the live stream tonight, that's why there was a rooster um, on, the, on the thumbnail. But the cock crew. Now you remember Jesus said, "Thou should, before the cock crows, you'll deny me three times. So this alarm clock goes off. And I mentioned it, what was it, yesterday, that you know the rooster for time immemorial has, has been a symbol of an alarm clock. Uh, wakes up mankind. And this is a spiritual alarm clock. Jesus used the rooster knowing that it's going to get Peter's attention. You, he won't be able to ignore that sound. Verse 75, Peter, and Peter remembered the word of Jesus, which said unto him, Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And he went out and wept bitterly. You know, while you're in the midst of backsliding, you can't always recognize what the Holy Spirit's pointing out to you. You don't even realize how deep you're going, how far off you've strayed, right? We read earlier in the chapter, he followed afar off. And while you're... While you're wandering away from the Lord, it's hard to see just how bad it's getting. But then all of us, all of us, at some point in our life, we have a rooster 
that gets our attention. We have an, a spiritual alarm clock that goes off and, and you remember, oh my goodness, I heard sermon after sermon after sermon about this exact thing, that if I wasn't careful about this and if I didn't pay attention to that and if I let this slip, and that I would fall, that I would, I, my love for Christ would wax cold and all of a sudden, bam, it just hits you. And when it does, this godly sorrow that brings about repentance. I believe that's, what, that's what's happened to Peter here. This is an, exa- an example of what Paul mentioned in 2 Corinthians 7 about godly sorrow. Now, in just a moment with Judas, we're going to see an example of the sorrow of the world, a worldly sorrow, the wrong kind of it. But Peter here, he has disappointed the Lord, and he knows it, and it's just gripped a hold of him. Now, there's a ton of practical application to this, And again, good preaching that could come from this. I hope that some of that sinks in. I hope that you meditate on that as time goes on. I do want to address, however, um, one thing, one problem that gets raised about this passage quite often. And that is there seems to be a contradiction between Matthew, Luke, John. They, They three have the same thing. Those three gospels and the gospel of Mark. In Mark's gospel, according to Mark, Jesus said, the cock will crow twice and you'll deny me before you deny me thrice. But then in these gospels, it just says before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. So what, what do we do with that? Why would Mark's gospel say twice? Let me see. You guys forgive me. Ah, I did remember it correctly. First try. Um, Mark 14, 30, Jesus saith unto him, Verily I say unto thee that this day, even in this night, before the cock crow twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. Now, forgive me, I'm going to try to scroll down and find it in the narrative here. Yeah, so Mark 14, 68. But he denied, this is the first denial, but he denied saying, I know not, neither understand I what thou sayest. And he went out into the porch and the cock crew. So there's the first crowing. And then you get down to the, to the final denial, verse 71, he began to curse and swear, I know not this man. In verse 72, the second time the cock crew and Peter called to mind the word that Jesus said. So how, how can this be true? How can both stories be true? It's actually, I think, a very simple explanation. Remember that Mark, according to church history, Mark wrote his gospel with the help of the apostle Peter. Now, I wouldn't go as far as to say that Peter is dictating all of these words to Mark, but we can at least say, according to church history, these are the records we have, that Peter was involved and that he at least supervised the writing of this gospel to a certain extent, which explains why you have such unique details about Peter in Mark's gospel such as this detail. What Matthew, Luke, and John do, they focus in on the cock crowing that got Peter's attention, that final denial. They zoom in and focus on that detail. Whereas Mark, he is giving you more details about the same story. I don't think that it contradicts. I think Mark is just giving us one more complimentary piece of information about the story. Now, I'm going to show you one other verse that I think will really help make sense of why this is not that big of an issue. Luke 22 and verse 59. This is the same story, 
All right, verse, uh, let's read verse 50. Mm, I'm just making sure we started a proper place here. Uh, verse 56, Luke twenty-two fifty-six. a certain maid beheld him as he sat by the fire, earnestly looked upon him, said, this man was also with him. He denied saying, woman, I know him not. And after a little while, another saw him and said, thou art also of them. Peter said, man, I am not. And about the space of one hour after another, uh, after another confidently uh, affirmed, saying of a truth, this fellow also was with him, for he is a Galilean. But I want you to see in verse 59, an hour went by. So put these, put these three gospels together. Matthew, Mark, Luke, what we've just seen. In Mark's gospel, Peter denies, a cock crows. Then somebody again, he goes out. Right? He is leaving while the rooster is crowing. So who knows if Peter even heard that, but the, but the cock did crow as he's leaving that area. And then immediately after that, somebody else makes an accusation. He denies it. But then an hour goes by before the cock crows again. So if you were to turn to one man and say, tell me the story. What's the story with Peter denying Jesus? You say, listen, man, I'll, I'll give you the nitty gritty. Here's the nuts and bolts. There were three denials and... The cock, as soon as he denied him that third time, the rooster crowed and, and it got Peter's attention. That's the heart of the story. What woke Peter up? What got his attention? Now, if you go to Mark and say, Mark, you tell me about the story. Yeah, you know, I'm telling you the same thing, but there was actually one other cock crowing and Jesus did mention this. It's a minor detail to add in that, that the cock crowed twice, but it's true. About an hour before, the, the rooster had sounded. So when you understand that an hour had gone by, you can see why other writers trying to tell the story may not see fit to include that detail in the heart of the story. That's not a major detail. So for me, I don't find any problem with this. I think it's just different. Uh, it's men telling the same story different ways, as far as I can tell. All right, so now we are ready to go, I hope. Let me know if you have any questions about that. Because God knows there's been plenty of people that have tried to work that out. I think there's an actually, as I've mentioned, a very straightforward explanation for it. But if you have questions, feel free. All right, uh, Matthew 27. Let me give you an outline for this. You guys forgive me. Give me just a second here. Because these contacts are really getting to me. I cannot see out of my right eye now. So this is contact time. <laughs> I've been working one, one fuzzy and one clear eye. Oh, I bought. I brought the big bottle because I, I wasn't sure how many of these drops I would need. <laughs> I don't uh, wear contacts very often. All right, chapter 27. Uh, here's the outline for it. Forgive me, it's also a bit small because it's a long chapter, a lot, a lot to it. Matthew 27, I would break it into three parts. Number one, Jesus before Pilate. The two parts to this, verses one and two, and then verses 11 to 18. Uh Part two of the outline, Judas before the priests. That's verses three to 10. And then the last part of the chapter, which is the majority of it, Jesus before the people. And this is obviously him making his way to the cross. So he's rejected by the multitude, verses 19 to 25. He's scourged and mocked by the soldiers, verses 26 to 31. He's crucified. Now, this, this will extend all the way through his death, right? Verses 32 to 54. And then his burial, verses 55 to 66. All right, so we're not going to 
the, um, finish the chapter by any means tonight, but we will make a little headway here. So verse one, I'm going to leave that outline up just for a few moments, give you a chance to copy that down if you'd like to do so. Verse one, when the morning was come. So for the Jews, right, the, the morning happens between three and six a.m. So now we're, we know from Luke that an hour went by with Peter out there warming himself by the fire. Jesus, he got arrested right about three. This might be about four, five in the morning, somewhere in there. Uh, when the morning was come, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. So this is, we already knew that they had come to this final decision. Now they're just, how do we hand over the prisoner to Pilate? Because the Jews, because it's a feast day, they're not going to put him to death. They don't want, for ceremonial reasons, ritual, religious reasons, they can't have this blood on their hands. So they're trying to figure out how can we get Pilate to do it for us. Verse two, and when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Uh, we're gonna revisit, well, let's say talk more about Pilate when we, when we get down to verse 11. Let me just mention here that when you have Luke's gospel sitting next to this, you have something unique in Luke's gospel. That is, it's at this point that the chief priests, the elders, lay an accusation against Jesus. They make it sound as if, as if he's trying to overthrow the government, which of course he wasn't. But then they say, you know, he forbids people to pay tax and all that kind of stuff. And in this accusation, they, uh, Pilate hears that Jesus is from Galilee. And he says, whoa, whoa, did you say Galilee? Let's send him to Herod. So then Jesus gets shipped off to Herod and Jesus stands there and Herod mocks him for a while and then sends him back to Pilate. Now, Matthew doesn't mention that part of the story. Um, he's going to cut over to Judas and give us some information about what happened to Judas. All right, verse three, then Judas. So again, camera two is off now, camera three. We switch to Judas. Uh, then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, that is, that Jesus was condemned, repented himself. So now it's hit Judas. Oh, man, this, this is not right. What, what I've done, now this is why I said, I don't think this is godly sorrow kicking in. I think he realizes, okay, they're going to put him to death. Um but how am I going to live with myself? Because this Jesus guy was a good guy. I've been preaching. I've been talking about him, walking with him. I had no right to be that upset or to be that frustrated or whatever. I, there was nothing that can justify what I've done. I'll never be able to live with myself again, never get over this guilt. He repents himself. So he changes his own mind and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and elders, saying, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See thou to that. Isn't it amazing how religion can only take you so far, but then religion, after a while, has to throw up its hands and say, listen, that's your problem. A great preaching in that. Religion will get you to the judgment. It'll get you to where you feel condemned, but then say, hey, man, your sins are your problem. You deal with it. Religion can't pay for sins. But anyway, we're, let's stick to this and not preaching. So Judas, he, he, he's trying to undo what he did. He's trying to give back the money and make it right. And he's, I believe that what he's aiming for is to restore somewhat of a reputation, to, to gain face, if, if you're familiar with that term. 
because he knows, man, I really look like the bad guy. And he is the bad guy. So he throws the money back. I've sinned. I've betrayed the innocent, the innocent blood. Not just innocent blood, the innocent blood. And so it's setting in what he's done here. Verse 5, And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. All right, now we're going to bounce back and forth a little bit here with the book of Acts. But in the book of Acts, people sometimes find a contradiction, what they suppose is a contradiction with this part of the story. Because here it says he hanged himself. So there it is. He, I think it's easy enough to assume that that's how he died. He hung himself. But then you have Acts chapter 1, verse 18. Now this man, speaking about Judas, purchased a field with the reward of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst asunder in the midst, and all his bowels gushed out. And they say, well, in, in the book of Acts, Luke has it that Judas uh, fell and burst open. So the accusation that is made against the Bible here is to say that Judas died twice, that he hung himself, he died, but here he says he fell down, that's how he died. But notice here in, in Acts 1.18, it doesn't say that he died here. It just says that he fell and that he burst open. Well, this would be consistent. I believe both Matthew and Luke, in this case, he wrote the book of Acts. I believe that, uh, again, these two accounts complement each other perfectly. So when it says he hanged himself, I would say that is what killed him. He died by, it was suicide, hanging. And most likely, he hung there for three days until the resurrection. And there's an earthquake at the resurrection. And with an earthquake, it, it's very easy to see that, G, that here's Judas hanging on a tree. And because of the earthquake, it shakes and down he falls. And he falls down this cliff, this, this uh, however deep it was, however long the drop was. And when he hits bottom, he burst open. So both things are true. But be careful, because in Acts, it doesn't say that he died because he fell. It just says that he fell, which that, that is completely possible that he falls after having hung himself. So no contradiction. Verse 6, Matthew 27 and verse 6. And the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, It is not lawful for, to put them into the treasury because it is the price of blood, blood money. So we gave this money to this man so that we could have a guy put to death. So this money, because it was used for uh, something, can we, because it was used to, to put a man to death, we can't, that, that I don't want to say an unholy thing because in their mind it was justified, but such an activity, we don't want to include that in our rituals. We don't want to make that a part of the, of the money of the temple. Which, look at what's going on here. They're putting an innocent man to death, and yet they're worried about their, this, the Corbin, the word treasury there is that word Corbin, if you're, you might remember that from the book of Mark. We talked about it several weeks ago in, in Matthew 15. But they're worried about the, how, how it's going to affect their religious rituals when they're killing the Son of God. Incredible how religion can blind, blind people. So they say, we, we, can't, we can't just put this money back into the treasury. Uh, now, some say that they took it from the treasury and gave it to Judas, and now and that's why Judas gave it back to them there. I, I'm not sure that's true. Uh, it could have easily been that the chief priests and elders 
got this money together of themselves and gave it to Judas. And now Judas, he knows where to find them. They're at the temple and he goes and throws it in there. So uh, I, I'm not sure we can tell precisely where the money came from. But verse seven, they took counsel and bought with them, with the pieces of silver, the potter's field to bury strangers in. So they go to this potter, whoever he is, that's nearby, and cut a deal with him. Now, we're not sure exactly how long after Judas hung himself that they went and made this deal, but however long it took, they talked to the potter and for just 30 pieces of silver, which isn't a lot of money by most people's estimation, they bought what seems to be a useless field, something that a potter, his main source of income is pottery, not, not a field. So he has this useless piece of ground sitting out. Let's buy it. We can bury strangers in it. You know, something that people will have no personal connection to. So verse 8, wherefore that field was called the field of blood unto this day. Very interesting verse. They say, why do we call this field the field of blood? Because they purchased it with blood money. The price of blood. The price of having a man put to death. So that is why some, that is why some people called it the field of blood. In the book of Acts, you're going to see another reason they called it that. We'll go there just now. But let me point this out. He says the field of blood unto this day. Very important. That shows us something. When Matthew wrote this gospel, the people of Israel were still in the land. That means Matthew wrote this gospel before 70 A.D. Because why would you say it like this if Israel has been ransacked by the Romans and all the Jews have been dispersed from their land. Nobody would be saying this field is called the field of blood. They wouldn't be referring to that field at all anymore. So the way this is written strongly suggests that the Jews are still in the land, people still are familiar with that landmark, and they still call it that. So this, this supports very strongly an early writing for the Gospel of Matthew. A lot of textual scholars say that Matthew was written, you know, maybe 90 or 100 AD. That, I'm sorry, I just cannot believe that with statements like this. All right, let me show you again in Acts why it's called the field of blood. I read verse 18 just a moment ago, now verse 19. And it was known unto all the dwellers at Jerusalem, insomuch as that field is called in their proper tongue, Al-Qadama. That is to say, the field of blood. Al-Qadama is a Chaldean or an Aramaic word. Chaldean and Aramaic is synonymous. But Al-Qadama means the field of blood. So according to Luke, the people in Jerusalem, they called it Al-Qadama because Judas fell and his bowels gushed out. So he makes that connection. Now again, people raise an issue with this and say, well, which is it? Why do they call it the field of blood? Both. Both reasons. Both are legitimate reasons to call it the field of blood. The fact that both things, both things took place in the same area, that the same field was bought where Judas fell and died, or fell and, and gushed, his bowels gushed out. I, I, I find it ironic. I think some people would look at that and go, to falach, right? Coincidence but uh, still true. The, these two stories do not contradict. 
Both of these things can be true at the same time. So no need to fault the Bible for any sort of problem here. And then the last thing we want to cover is, is this, verse 9. Then was fulfilled that, uh, Matthew 27, verse 9. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him that was valued, whom they of the children of Israel did value. Verse 10, And gave them for the potter's field as the Lord appointed me. All right, we're going to take a look at this prophecy in just a moment. But let me first explain something about where Matthew says it comes from. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet. Now, you got to forgive me. My best friend growing up was named Jeremy. So for me to say Jeremy sounds very casual and almost disrespectful. So I'm going to use the term Jeremiah because that's, that's the way we know it from the Old Testament. This prophecy is found in Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 11 to be specific. But according to Matthew, it's something that was given by Jeremiah. So once again, people say, well, this is, this is a mistake. This is a problem in the Bible. I don't think that it is. Now, there's, there's several different approaches to this, right? Some manuscripts, take they don't have the word Jeremiah. It just says it's spoken by the prophet, and that's it. So some people go to that and say, well, this is, this is the poor manuscript. You should choose a different manuscript. There are not a lot of manuscripts that leave it out. The majority of manuscripts have the name Jeremiah. So that's not a, an, a, an acceptable approach for me. Uh, here's another approach. This is very simplistic, but I, I think there's a point to it. It says here, it was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet. So it's very plausible that Jeremiah, because Jeremiah came before Zechariah, that Jeremiah said this, and then later on, Zechariah also said it and wrote it down. So it, it's possible that Jeremiah said it, and didn't write it down. It was passed down, you know, oral transmission until the time of Zechariah when he wrote it down. So that's, it's hard to disprove that. But to be honest, it's hard to make any sort of sub substantive case. There, there's really no proof. That's just a good explanation. But there it stands. That's one way to approach it. I'll tell you what I think is most likely happening here. It was very common back in, in the biblical times. They didn't have books like we have now. They used scrolls. Now, if you have a scroll, you, you can picture in your mind, you know, you're, you got this long piece of paper and you roll it up on both sides. The Jews, their, their Bible was broken up into three parts. They had the law. They had what, uh, what they now call the writings. The fancy word for that is the hagiographa. Uh, Jesus referred to it as the Psalms. Right? The law, the Psalms, and the prophets. Now, the reason Jesus said the law, that's the, the Moses writing, the Psalms, why, when, when referring to the Psalms, that includes all of the post-exilic books, things like uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, Ruth, all of that, uh, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, all these other books are included under what we call the writings. Jesus called it the Psalms. Why? Because the book of Psalms was the biggest book in that section, and it was the first book in that section. So he referred to that entire section, all the books that would come after it, just as the Psalms. So when Jesus referred to the prophets in Luke 24, 44, Jesus mentioned those three parts, the law of Moses, the Psalms, the prophets. The prophets are broken into two categories. You have the former prophets and the latter prophets. 
And then with the latter profits, that breaks down into two categories. You have the major profits, that's Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And then what we would call the minor prophets, they call the book of the 12, because there's 12 minor prophets and they very small books. And for the Jews, they actually are contained in one book, the book of the 12 minor prophets. So I think what happened is when you want to read the prophets, right, you, you get a scroll and at the top, right, Jeremiah is a rather large book. So you have a scroll that, where Jeremiah is the heading on the scroll. But when you un, unroll the scroll, you're going to find the book of Zechariah within the Jeremiah scroll. So this was a very common thing for Jews to do, to say, where did you find that? Where can I find that, that statement, that phrase? Go look in the Jeremiah scroll, right? So I think that's probably what happened here. That's why Matthew refers to it as spoken by Jeremy the prophet, is because it's on that scroll. All right, now, like I said, there are other explanations, but I think that is the, the best one. Now, quickly, um, let me show you in Zechariah what was fulfilled. Let me try again to show you. Huh. Sorry, don't know why the verse wouldn't pull up. Um, Zechariah chapter 11, starting at verse 12. And I said unto them, and this is the Lord speaking, If ye think good, give me my price, and if not, forbear. So they weighed for my price 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said unto me, cast it unto the potter, a goodly price that I was priced at of them, which is most likely sarcasm because 30 pieces of silver is not a lot of money. That's what you would pay for a slave. But again, we just don't have time to dig into all of that. But this was a slap in God's face. And it says here, and I took the 30 pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. Now, when you read that in Zechariah, you know what you're thinking? Why is there a potter in the house of the Lord? How do those two things go together? There's no way you could have dreamed up the conclusion, the fulfillment of this, right? Not by just reading Zechariah 11, but we know now having access to the story. Matthew 27, the money is cast into the temple, the house of the Lord, and then the chief priest and elders take that money to the potter and buy a field from the potter. So I took the 30 piece, cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. So this is a very intricate, detailed prophecy that gets fulfilled completely. The potter does end up with the money. Now, mind you, Judas did not directly give it to him. It was, it was indirectly given through Judas, through the chief priest, to these people. And, so to say, I'm going to take this money throw it, and give it in the temple to the potter, tremendous how it all comes together. But now you can see what was fulfilled. All right, that's as far as we're going to get tonight. I hope that answers all the questions that usually come up with this passage. Let me know if you do have any questions. Um, I need to give you the notes for the Philippians exam. So give me just one moment and I'll pull that up. Uh, this will also, if you need time to slip a question in. This is the, the right time to do it. Guys, forgive me. This is the best I know how to do to put the, the test up on the screen. We're going to put this in the Google Drive so that you can download it and study for it. But let me read the, uh, the questions and explain 
what we're looking for in these questions. The Philippians exam. This will be due next Wednesday. Number one, what is the major theme of Philippians? Francois made that clear. Number two, what was Paul confident of according to chapter one and verse six? Uh, number three, that all of this is straightforward so far. When Paul mentions the day of Jesus Christ, that's also in one verse six, to what event is he referring? I know that you should have that in your notes. Uh, number four, name three things that formed part of Paul's prayer for the Philippians. Now, Francois has designated here chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. So that's where you need to find your answer. Three things from that list that Paul was praying about for the Philippians. Number five, describe briefly the mind which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, I will tell you there's three or four acceptable answers to this, but you'll find that in chapter 2, verses 5, 6, 7, 8, right in there. Number six, what does Paul mean by work out your own salvation? That's chapter 2 and verse 12. Number seven, what made Timothy a worthy candidate to be Paul's, forgive me, that should be fellow laborer. Timothy's just one person, so that's just one guy. Uh, what made him a worthy candidate? This is later on in Philippians 2, right down verse 19, 20, 21. Again, there's two or three possible answers to this that we, that we will accept. Number eight, what necessitated Epaphroditus to work for Christ until he almost died? At the end of chapter two, you'll see that there, at the end of that verse, Paul mentions why Epaphroditus felt inclined to do that. Number nine, who are the concision, as mentioned in chapter three and verse two? Just check your notes. Francois will explain that well for you. Uh, you'll need to be familiar with chapter three, verse eight, to fill in the blanks. According to chapter three, verse 13, what were the two parts of the one thing that Paul did while pressing toward the goal of being conformed to the image of Christ? So what's unique about that verse, Paul said, this one thing I do, and then the one thing he's doing is actually explained with two parts. So we need, I would like for you to give both parts of what Paul mentioned there. And then two memory verses, chapter 3, verse 14, and chapter 4, verse 8. All right, so there's your Philippians exam. That'll be due next Wednesday. All right, I didn't see any other questions come in, so I hope we're all good for that. I'll go ahead and pray, and we'll be closed and finished for this evening. I'll quickly remind you, no class this coming Sunday. We do have a church service in the morning, but no class. We have nothing planned for Sunday evening, so I hope you guys enjoy the long weekend. All right, Father, thank you for this opportunity tonight to look at all these scriptures and Father, as we hear about what our Savior went through for us, and we haven't even got to the part of Him uh, being crucified, Him being whipped, being mocked by the soldiers, there's still so much more to come. Lord, help us to take in what we've learned tonight and apply it and let it sink deep into our hearts. Please, Lord, help us to wake up before the rooster sounds. Help us, Lord, to pay attention to our walk with You and stay close not wander far off, but stay as close as we can. Father, thank you for this privilege of opening up a Bible and studying about your son. And I pray you to please keep your hand upon us, many of us, as we travel, people going various places. Uh, please keep everyone safe. And Lord, we look forward to the next time we're able to learn. We ask and thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Thanks so much, guys. Lord willing, I'll see you Sunday.